BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Happy Friday, November 3rd, about 8.30 in the morning in our nation's capital. Time to catch up on the news of the week on today's Reporters Roundtable. Well, while holding our breath about what's going on in Gaza, there was still lots of less important but juicy stuff to report on here at home. New Speaker Mike Johnson's first move was to deliver a vote for, an aid, for aid to Israel only, promising to take up funding for Ukraine later, but he may have run into a brick wall named Mitch McConnell. The House came back to town, raring to expel George Santos and censure Rashida Tlaib and Marjorie Taylor Greene, but ended up doing neither. In New York, the Trump boys testified about Trump Inc.'s finances, while out in Colorado and Minnesota, two other courts are considering whether, under the 14th Amendment, their father is even a legitimate candidate for president. Meanwhile, Mike Pence dropped out of the 2024 Republican primary, and Dean Phillips popped into the Democratic primary. Did anybody notice either? Well, here today to help sort it all out for us, David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Hello, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? All right. Good to have you back. Arthur Delaney, political reporter for HuffPost on the job every day. Hello, Arthur. Hello. And back with us again, Lauren Burke, who is a political commentator, also a writer for Black Press USA. Lauren, good to have you back as well. Hey, Bill, how you doing? All right. So, Arthur, last time we talked, um, Kevin McCarthy had been ousted and the whole circus started. The circus is now over. The new guy's in place. And his first move was to get the House to vote for a resolution for Israel aid to Israel only, knowing that Republicans in the Senate don't like that, the White House doesn't like it, Mitch McConnell doesn't like it. So how do we read this, as a bold move or a rookie mistake? It's a clear effort to pander to the same guys who threw Kevin McCarthy out of the Speaker's office. The context is that the White House and Mitch McConnell want a package of foreign aid to both Israel and Ukraine. And uh, because of the Ukraine politics among Republicans, Mike Johnson didn't want to do that. But rather than pass an Israel bill that would, would get bipartisan support in the House, he attached a essentially a, a tax cut for wealthy Americans to it. And it passed with only a few Democrats in support who said they hated that, that uh, tax provision but didn't want to be mean to Israel. But uh, ultimately, that that bill is going nowhere. So it's the same pattern we've seen before where the House Republicans do something that they like while ignoring the reality of divided government and you know the presence of Democrats in the Senate and the White House. Uh, it's not clear how this will get resolved, and it augurs poorly for government funding and a possible shutdown after November 17th. 
Uh, maybe the question I should have started with you, Arthur. So do you see that uh, Johnson's going to have a, a, um, a little bit of a honeymoon anyway in these early weeks? Well, by doing this, he is giving himself a honeymoon with the rest of uh, right-wing Republicans who would throw him out just like they threw out uh, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. Now, th those people aren't saying they want to throw Johnson out. They're saying they're glad they got Johnson. So, yes. There's a honeymoon in that no explicit threat against gavel has been made yet. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, like everyone else, is like, well, he's a pretty nice guy. Uh, yeah. Reporters who've dealt with him, we all think he's a pretty nice guy. But but he's following the, the very familiar pattern that has no clear uh, uh, successful outcome. And uh, the rubber will hit the road, I guess you could say when the, he starts actually negotiating with the other uh, uh, partners in the legislative process. Right. So, Lauren, as uh, Arthur indicated, there is a poison pill on this Israel aid package, which is cutting um, some of that money that was in an earlier Biden bill for, for uh, increased, um, what do we say, uh, effort on the part of the IRS to catch tax sheets, cheats rather. Here is, um, after they passed this yesterday, Jim McGovern Democrat from Massachusetts saying, how can they do this? Here he is. This is a complete waste of time. And I haven't even got to how cynical and insulting this new supplemental aid package is. Republicans are leveraging the excruciating pain of an international crisis to help rich people who cheat on their taxes. In fact, the Congressional Budget Office, Lawrence, said this is not going to cut the deficit. This is going to add to the deficit because of the revenue that will be lost uh, due to tax cheats. Uh, again, good policy or good uh, politics? No, uh, well, the politics, obviously, and Arthur is absolutely correct. I mean, obviously, uh, the new speaker is trying to impress uh, the Matt Gates wing of the Republican Party in the House uh, with uh, putting these poison pills in the aid bills that, of course, will not pass the Senate, and everybody knows it won't pass the Senate. So, yes, it is a colossal waste of time. And yeah, it is a massive tip of the cap to anybody who uh, gets a, a tax cut because the IRS can't find that you're cheating on taxes because you're uh, uh, wealthy and can, you know, exploit every loophole that's out there. So they did sort of a tip of the cap there to their wealthy donors on top of everything else. Um, I don't know where this leads, but it is, in fact, a massive waste of time. It brings us to the brink of the government not being funded. Uh, once again, playing games with the House Republicans in terms of what they, uh, you know, this this idea that you can please everybody in the House Republican caucus is is just not, you know, not workable. Uh, he's, of course, trying to uh, the speaker, uh, Mike Johnson, is trying to please the right flank and um, at the same time uh, displease, of course, the Republicans in the Senate. So obviously this is not going to go through. So it always goes to what happens next and, and yeah, how we get yeah. to what happens next. And, and that's where we are now. So it's stuck. And again, it brings us to the brink right before Thanksgiving of the government not being funded. Right. Again, again, again. And David, there's one thing missing, of course, from the House bill, which is Ukraine. Uh, and here is, a, before, before you jump in, here is Mitt Romney yesterday saying, you know, that the this dog don't hunt, basically. Here he is. If we're going to have a piece of legislation that actually becomes law, it's going to include support for Ukraine as well as Israel. Uh, there may be other elements that are attached to it, but uh, it's uh, not acceptable to abandon Ukraine. 
And I think that seems to be the view, David, of most Senate Republicans. I think that's right, uh, but not most congressional Republicans, and certainly not most <laughs> Trump Republicans. Yeah. Um, they're just uh, they're down on Ukraine partly because of the partly because of this unusual fealty to Russia, but also because let's face it, a lot of this is personal. You know, Trump. Uh, remember when Trump tried to get the president of Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden? Uh, the president of Ukraine wouldn't do it, so Trump didn't like that, and I'm, I'm convinced that is the basis of this all, all this Republican opposition to aid to Ukraine. It all boils down to a personal beef between Trump and Zelensky. But uh, it, here, here we are anyway. Um, I don't, I don't cover Congress as you noted, but so my angle on this is the Trump angle. I'm convinced that Trump is uh, is very pleased with Mike Johnson and is working with Mike Johnson and wouldn't mind seeing a government shutdown because he thinks it'll hurt the economy and thereby help his presidential campaign. So uh, that's, that's the way I see it. Um, uh, Johnson is just, Johnson is just doing Trump's bidding pushing Trump's agenda on the house. And even though he knows it won't, it won't be approved by the Senate or certainly, certainly not by Biden. I, I seem to think that's okay. I think they're, I think they're all, they would almost welcome a government shutdown at this point. Uh, and Arthur Mitch McConnell has made no, uh, no secret about where he stands on this issue. He, this week, he even invited the uh, um, ambassador of Ukraine to the United States down to Louisville for a big Kentucky gathering, right? So it's Johnson versus Mitch McConnell. McConnell, who is in the uh, twilight of his career, views yes. Ukraine as a le- legacy-defining item, uh, a way to keep the party from turning toward Trump and isolationism. And I, I think he's got the Senate Republicans on his side for now, but there are a lot of them who said to me and other reporters, well, why don't we, let's see what Mike Johnson can get through the house and work with that. So uh, mm. McConnell uh, is in a precarious position as well, but as far as anyone can tell, still holds the upper hand uh, versus the anti-Ukraine faction and is a, a major reason to be skeptical of what Mike Johnson is trying to pull off by splitting Israel from Ukraine in this bill. Okay, now while we're talking about Senate Republicans, um, let's talk about Tommy Tuberville or Tuberville. How do you pronounce it, Arthur? Tuberville, Tuberville. I use Tuberville. I believe that is correct. Okay, let's say Tuberville. There we go. Well, as we know, he's had this hold up, holding up uh, any military promotions because he doesn't like the abortion policies that are current in the Pentagon. Yesterday, the Senate did manage to get three new promotions through, uh, but not before. It's not just Democrats taking on Tuberville, not before Senate Republicans lashed out him, uh, at, at him, uh, including, and maybe beginning with, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina. You just denied this lady a promotion. You did that. All of us are ready to promote her because she deserves to be promoted. No matter where you believe it or not, Senator Turbeville, this is doing great damage to our military. Folks, if this keeps going, people are going to leave. Lauren, doesn't seem this is a good issue for Republicans to run on, holding up military promotions. No, particularly when one of them, uh, the Admiral Lisa Franchetti, (laughs) made history as the first woman to serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And of course, uh, for years, the Republican Party has branded itself to uh, police and the military, two of the most respected uh, entities in the United States, 
and uh, somehow destroys all that with a senator from Alabama who, for whatever reason, uh, keeps blocking military promotions. Obviously, the reason is abortion. And it was interesting to listen to Senator Lindsey uh, Graham articulate that, you know, there are ways to deal with things. The way you deal with this is, is sort of a legal a lawsuit, a, a legal argument, not here on the floor of the United States Senate blocking uh, military promotions. And of course, one of those promotions involved, um, you know, someone who had had a heart attack. And I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing that can happen that apparently can change the mind of Tom, Tommy Tuberville. Now he's got his own party going in on him uh, because everybody is fed up. And <laughs> you can kind of you can kind of feel <laughs> the <tension> there <laughs> when you see the Republicans, uh, you know, Dan Sullivan being the other Republican who really went in on Tuberville this week. Uh, and I, I I'm surprised, actually, that Tuberville has not. Uh, gotten a lot of pressure from his constituents in Alabama uh, because, of course, that is a very uh, military adjacent state. I mean, a lot of military veterans and, and folks that serve in the military, military bases. And so uh, I don't know uh, what level that's happened at, but I suspect that's the next uh, bit of pressure that he is bound to get on this issue. Yeah. Well, David, you're our resident southerner here in South Carolina. <laughs> what about that? Um, why hasn't there been more in terms of the rank and file military? You know, we've seen the defense secretary and, and the head of the Joint Chiefs criticize Tuberville, but we haven't seen any, like, I haven't, protests on the basis or, or anything. Uh, and, no, but and, I think there's, a, I think go there's a lot going on behind. I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes. I mean, there's, um, I think the military establishment's kind of fed up with the, the length of time that this, is, this has been going on, and they've been letting their... Uh, their uh, representatives here. And I'm sure Graham's hearing a lot about it from South Carolina, which is a very big military state. I think uh, pe- people are just tired of it. They don't, they don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. Tuberville's doing this because of abortion policy. Well, that has nothing to do with national defense. So that's got a lot of people frustrated. But a guy in the Pentagon told me this week that the, a real big factor in this, and Lauren alluded to it, was this heart attack. Apparently, yeah. there's some commandant in the military who was work, basically working two jobs because the person who was supposed to have the other job hasn't been promoted yet. And he had a heart attack on the job. And he's in intensive care. And this uh, this has just outraged a lot, a lot of military people. And I think that they really turned the heat up on the uh, on the senators this week. And that's why you saw some of this, so, so much of this protest on the floor of the Senate from Republicans who were trying to tell Tuberville to get off the schneid here. Right. Uh, he was the acting head of the Marines, um, living at the Marine barracks, which is right down the street from where we live on Capitol Hill, Arthur, near where you live on Capitol Hill. Uh, and he was out jogging and he was a block from the commandant's headquarters, had a heart attack. And, and there they are. What can they do? Right. Because of Tuberville. Yeah, that just triggered, that just triggered. And I, this is one of those things that everybody heard about it and everybody got really, really ticked off about it. And I think you've seen the reaction to it on Capitol Hill this week. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, just a couple of other quick issues before we take a break of dealing with uh, Congress. Arthur, we thought this was going to be bloodletting time in Washington. George Santos was going to be thrown out and uh, Congresswoman Tlaib and Congresswoman Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene were going to be censured by, and nothing happened. What did they, did they just decide to chicken out or what? Well, we didn't think that these things would happen. We just knew that there would be votes because all those uh, resolutions were were filed uh, with the with privilege, meaning that uh, when when the uh, lawmakers introduced them last week, it required the House to vote on it. We, we knew Santos would be tough for them to get rid of because it takes a two thirds supermajority of House members. 
So that's why, uh, you know, uh, but then it turned out that a lot of Democrats actually did not like the idea of expelling George Santos, even though everyone agrees he is some kind of pathological liar who has probably committed a whole lot of crimes and who has been indicted. He hasn't been convicted yet. So it, yeah. it basically comes down to that. We don't want to you know, overrule the people who elected him before he's had a conviction. Uh, and the the resolution uh, regarding Talib, it you know Republicans love to uh, censure and, and reprimand um, uh, Muslim members of Congress who are Democrats, and you'd think they'd have gone for that. But when you looked at the resolution language, uh, and this was written by Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh -huh. it, accu it accused Talib of leading an insurrection at the Capitol. That's literally what it said, because she, she spoke at a protest in October that and the protesters then entered the Cannon House office building and continued their demonstration, which you're not allowed to do. So they, they filed in, they went through the metal detectors, and then they you know, sat on the floor in the Cannon Rotunda and, and were chanting and police arrested them. And it was just such an obvious effort to trivialize the insurrection that happened on January 6th that Republicans thought it was disgusting. They don't like the idea of calling January 6th an insurrection. And so they didn't want to call this, you know, totally civil disobedience an insurrection either, even though they don't like uh, Tlaib. Yeah. And so I talked to Green and she said, well, if you're not if you're not willing to force Democrats to play by their own rules, then you're never going to hold them accountable. And so she said so what she's saying is if they called us insurrectionists, we have to call them insurrectionists. I said. You're you're basically saying you want you want people to say something that's not true, and she, you know she wasn't you know she denied that, but obviously that is what she's doing. And Republicans thought it was gross. Yeah. All right. So Lauren, uh, President Biden today is going up to Lewiston, Maine, to meet with the families there, the victims of the mass shooting at the bowling alley last week. Uh, right in the wake of which, uh, Congressman. Jared Golden of Maine sort of stunned everybody by standing up and saying that he had been wrong uh, in voting against a ban on assault weapons. He had changed his mind. He apologized to the people of Maine. Um, uh, Lauren, any, do you think that'll make any difference at all in the House or Senate in terms of some move toward more gun safety legislation? Well, I don't know if it'll change anybody else's uh, minds, but it certainly breaks the typical cycle that we have after mass murder in this country, which is effectively, you know, the thoughts and prayer statements, the photos of the victims, the vigil, the presidential visit, uh, the outrage from the families. And then we just do the whole thing all over again, exactly the same way until the next mass murder. So at least it was a break in that action that you had someone who actually thoughtfully said to themselves, well, you know what, maybe this is really bad policy that I have been endorsing. And maybe that bad policy has led to the uh, deaths of 18 people for absolutely nothing. So that may be a, a thing. Uh, but it is unfortunate that in this country we, um, you know, and you're talking to a person whose dad was gun nut, a cop and a gun nut. 
But that was in the era when the NRA talked about hunting. He was, my father was a member of the NRA, but we are in an era where people just like to have uh, AK-47s for no reason, uh, because it it's cool to show off uh, at the range. I mean, there's just no reason, but at least that broke the cycle. Whether it breaks the cycle in any other way with any other uh, group of lawmakers, that is probably unlikely, but it was interesting to see that particular lawmaker flip. Indeed. A shout out to uh, Jared Golden. And with that, let's take a quick break here and then get back to some of the other politics of the day. Big uh, uh, off-year elections coming up in Virginia and Kentucky and Ohio next week. We'll talk about that, plus the latest in the 2024 primary with today's panelists, Arthur Delaney and Lauren Burke and David Jackson. Quick break and we'll be right back. And today's podcast, today's Reporters Roundtable, brought to you by the United Auto Workers of America. A big shout out to the auto workers. I got to tell you, I kept thinking about Mark Twain, right? He said that the reports of his death were greatly exaggerated. Well, you can say that about labor unions in America, too. Just about the time everybody was trying to write them off, saying they had lost their clout, lost their influence, lost their power, Sean Fain becomes president of the UAW, and he proves everybody wrong, holding the line, walking the line, even with the help of President Joe Biden. They did win agreements, landslide, great agreements for for the auto workers with Ford uh, and with uh, General Motors, uh, and they are now the big winners and have breathed new life back into the American labor movement. We salute the members of the UAW. Uh, great work, good for labor, good for the country, and certainly good for the auto workers. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod. Today's Reporters Roundtable, Lauren Burke joining us, a writer for Black Press USA, Arthur Delaney, political correspondent for HuffPost, covering the Congress, and David Jackson, the national political reporter for USA Today. David, off year, but big elections coming up at the gubernatorial level in Kentucky and Mississippi. 
Uh, how do they look? Tell us about it. Uh, well, in Kentucky, we've got the Democrat Andy Beshear trying to hang on to his job as governor, and he's going up against uh, an interesting candidate, a black Republican, uh, Daniel Cameron. And if Cameron pulls that out, he will be a major national figure, and he'll be somebody talked about for national office. But it's he's, it's looking like he's an underdog situation right now, and Bashir's looked like he's in pretty decent shape. But we also have a kind of interesting race in Mississippi, of all places. I mean, in a normal election year, Tate Reeves, the Republican incumbent, would be a huge favorite. But he's being pressed by a Democrat named Brandon Presley. Yes, Presley. He's a distant cousin of Elvis. But he's a very conservative Democrat who's trying to get the governorship, and uh, he's running on an economic platform. He's running on a plan to expand Medicaid in the state, and he's trying to get the, the African-American vote in Mississippi more organized than it has been. And, and polls show that he is actually in a position to pull a potential upset over Reeves on Tuesday night. So I think I think most people will be looking at uh, Mississippi, of all places, on, during these off-year elections because it's another sign that Democrats are trying to make uh, a comeback in the South. Hard to believe a Democrat would have a chance in Mississippi, but what are uh, very what hard. Are, what yeah. are Presley and Bashir's doing about uh, Joe Biden? Uh, keeping their distance, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but they both they both basically say they're their own person. They're not going to be dictated to by the. Uh, you know, by the Democrats or the Biden administration. Obviously, their opponents, the Republican opponents, are trying to tie them both to the Biden administration and the Democratic Party in general because neither is very popular in Mississippi or Kentucky. But uh, there hasn't been, you know, not a lot of Biden love from the uh, from the gubernatorial candidates in uh, in the South. Right, and of course, those of us who live in Washington know uh, you can't help but know there are big races in Virginia on November seventh. As I believe, Lauren, every seat in the assembly and every seat in the in the Senate is up. Um, and from what I see on the television ads, abortion is the big issue. What, what do you see going on there? <laughs> yeah, can you tell Bill that abortion is the big issue? <laughs> um, every yeah. every ad I see for every candidate. Right. Yeah. yeah, we're going to find out from the Virginia races, which is 140 seats in the House of Delegates, um, the Senate is 40 seats and the uh, House of Delegates is 100. Uh, Whether or not the abortion issue really is the needle mover, as it has been in a few other states before this uh, in Virginia, and uh, we're going to see a few historic things happen. Actually, no matter what the outcome, there's actually going to be a record number of African-Americans serving in the Virginia legislature uh, next year, uh, no matter what happens. But certainly this, the way that this race has gone uh, in almost every, in almost every seat uh, is crime versus abortion. So the Republicans are leaning heavily on crime, even though the crime numbers are down, almost all of their ads go into, you know, this Democrat, let these criminals out and therefore (laughs) do not vote for them. Uh, to your point a few seconds ago with regard to uh, Joe Biden, the Democrats are distancing from Joe Biden in Virginia. Uh, Wes Moore, the governor of Maryland, <laughs> is going to be campaigning this weekend in Virginia, uh, starting tomorrow in Virginia Beach. And so it's interesting. You don't see uh, any real references to Joe Biden. And then you have the governor of Maryland showing up <laughs> in Virginia. So so that's what's happening. And um, it will be very interesting to see uh, whether or not the abortion issue, which Democrats have leaned in very heavily on, very heavily on, is the, the mover of the needle in these races. 
Yeah. And Arthur, this is something that uh, Republicans in the House must be watching, right? We've also got the um, the off-year election, um, the ballot initiative in Ohio next week, which would guarantee, you know, Ohio of all states, guaranteeing access to abortion. The outcome on that issue on both in both Ohio and Virginia uh, will certainly have an impact on the 2024 congressional races. Absolutely. And Virginia in particular is important because there's a, a 15-week abortion ban is the position that Republicans have begun to coalesce around. And if they if Republicans do badly in Virginia, you know, that bodes poorly for the 15-week abortion ban uh, that's that uh, Republicans both in Virginia and nationally have have uh, begun to settle on. So uh, it's that simple. If if uh, if they do bad in Virginia, then this will be trouble for them next November. Yeah. But uh, David, um, there's probably nobody is watching the results uh, in Virginia or anticipating them more than the governor, Glenn Youngkin. I mean, <laughs> this does have a direct impact, right, or could on 2024. And is there still, let's say Republicans do well in Virginia, is there still a lane for Youngkin to jump into the primary? I don't think so, but there, there are a few Republicans who would like to see a new candidate come in, and Youngkin is the name that gets mentioned most often. And he's attended uh, some fundraisers, with some big shot Republicans lately, but I haven't, I got to tell you, I haven't heard much coming out of those fundraisers. I think the idea is kind of dead right now, but uh, it, I think it's just too late for another candidate. And in any event, I think, I think Younger would have a lot of trouble if he tried to run nationally at this point. Right. What do you hear, Lauren, in Virginia? Um, is, is Younger sort of the shadow candidate? Is, is, is he pushing, you know, Republicans to take over both houses because that'll be his springboard? Uh, yeah, I think he's running. I actually think he's running for I know a lot of people say that, oh, it's too late and this and that. But when you have a guy that has $400 million in assets who can pay people to do what he needs to get done uh, with regard to ballot access, even on this short notice, and you have the leading Republican candidate looking at several indictments, which just throws the thing into a big question mark as to what may or may not happen with him. I mean, the timing does look good for Donald Trump in terms of being able to navigate his legal issues and the primaries. And certainly he is the front runner. There's no doubt about that, but it's still a big question mark. And I just think when one of your major supporters runs a news network that everyone on the right pays attention to, which would be Fox news, uh, that's a huge advantage for Glenn Youngkin. And even though, yes, he is waiting to see what happens with the 140 seats of the Virginia general assembly. I think he was just waiting in terms of, just not wanting to look like he was getting out in front of that. And and certainly it would make him look fantastic if the Republicans were to flip the Senate and hold the House. But if things just sort of stayed the same and the Democrats held the, uh, the majority in the Virginia Senate uh, as they do now, uh, and uh, the Republicans uh, held on to the power in the Virginia House as they do now, that's fine for Youngkin as well. I just think with that much money, he's running. Uh-huh. Right. So, Arthur, um, you know, of course, the political landscape was just uh, totally changed last week when uh, Dean Phillips went up to New Hampshire and said, I'm running against Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. Y- you know, all members of Congress, you, you deal with all of them. Who is this guy and what's he what's this all about? I mean, Dean, it's kind Dean of a Phillips joke, is, isn't a, it? 
Well, he's like Mike Johnson, another very pleasant and affable, somewhat backbench member of com- Congress. And he, but he's been talking all year about the problem, the political problem of uh, Joe Biden's age and and of Diane Feinstein's age. And he he's been saying we need a new generation uh, of of political leadership. And that's the entire premise of his campaign. There's there's not much policy difference. None, really, that is uh, worth pointing out between him and the president. And so this is uh, just making the age thing center stage with little else uh, uh, to to justify it other than bringing attention to him. And uh, it's not clear to me at all how much impact it could have, because on the one hand, voters are very unhappy that Joe Biden is so old. On the other hand, it's not clear that that means they actually don't want to vote for him, or that they want to roll the dice on a on a uh, you know sort of unknown quantity in a primary challenge. Historically, primary uh, a primary challenge to a sitting president is disastrous for that party's efforts to to keep the White House. Yeah, uh, David. Uh, well, um, Dean Phillips is jumping in. Mike Pence was dropping out, <laughs> which really it, it must not have come as a surprise to you, right? No, oh, no, not at all. First of all, I just want to go back to the the, sure. the Phillips situation. You know, the yeah. White House hasn't said much about the campaign. Uh, they, they don't even talk that much about Trump. But when Phillips announced, I got calls from them. They are just outraged. They just do not like this guy. And they're they're talking a lot of stories about how Phillips was an Air Force One, like a tourist, you know, taking selfies and <laughs> getting Biden to talk to his family members. Uh, that that just really struck me, this the outrage that with which uh, Phillips's candidacy was greeted by the White House. But anyway, as far as Mike Pence, no, the only surprise was that he decided to announce his departure in a big speech for the Republican Jewish Coalition, which was a pretty big deal last weekend. All the candidates were there. But uh I think uh, the, the most immediate problem for him was I'm not sure he would have qualified for this upcoming debate in Miami on November 8th. And that would have been very embarrassing. So I think he decided just to short circuit it by going ahead and dro- dropping out now. And um, it, it made him kind of a ripple in the I think Pence ran a decent campaign, actually. But, he, you know, he really never had a chance because the Trump people didn't like him because he so he allegedly betrayed them on January 6th. And the anti-Trump people never really trusted Mike Pence because he served so loyally for Trump for so long. So I, th- I think his entire campaign was basically a bid to improve his standing in history. And I think he might actually have done that. But I don't, I don't think his departure from the race is going to have much impact at all. Right. Uh, and finally, Lauren, uh, Politico this morning has a big story where uh, more and more people are saying to the other to the men in the Democratic, or the, I'm sorry, the Republican primary. Look, Nikki Haley obviously is the one. We all, everybody else should drop out and give Nikki Haley a chance to knock down Donald Trump. Um, how do you view the uh, the Nikki Haley boomlet? We've seen other boomlets fail. Uh, is this one more serious? Um, maybe. I mean, she's she did very well during the debates. Uh, she comes off certainly a heck of a lot warmer than Ron DeSantis. I mean, so <laughs> there's that. And it's a low so that bar. Was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I just, you know, there's something about his retail personality that is extremely stiff and, and questionable. And she doesn't have that problem. 
uh, as, as somebody who's just, you know, better to it's sort of easier to like as a candidate. So it doesn't surprise me. She certainly is really solid on the issues and presented that, you know, during the uh, debates without it being, you know, mean, <laughs> I mean, spirited. Uh, so so it wouldn't surprise me if there was sort of a boomlet, because, of course, there remains this question about the front runner, about Donald Trump, even though he is the front runner by a lot. There are some challenges here that are uh, unprecedented that have never been seen before. And, uh, you know, speaking of age, he's not too far away from the same age as Joe Biden, which is why I suspect they're not, you know, Trump is not really talking about Biden's age that much because he's not that much younger than Joe Biden. Uh, so uh, there's there's that. And so Nikki Haley is in that, you know, upcoming up and coming generation. So we'll see what happens. And a great big thanks to uh, today's panelists, David Jackson, Lauren Burke and Arthur Delaney. Before you go, there must have been one story of the week that you were covering or not covering uh, that caught your attention. Your favorite story of the week. Uh, Arthur, start us off, please. I have to give a shout out to my HuffPost colleague, Akbar Ahmed, who has been following the State Department's handling of the Israel-Gaza war. And he had a story yesterday. He had a story on Thursday about the sidelining mm. of skeptics within the State Department, uh, people who are concerned that the administration is doing too little to protect innocent Palestinian life. Very good story. Didn't see that. I'll have to check it out. Thank you, Arthur. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, how about Lauren? What caught your attention? Uh, so I have been paying attention to Melissa DeRosa's book, What's Left Unsaid. Uh, Melissa DeRosa uh, was a senior advisor to the former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Mm -hmm. And there was a story by Politico that uh, by Jeff Colton that went over the book, uh, which was probably one of the fairer stories about the book. There's some very strong feelings <laughs> about what Melissa DeRosa has written in her book. <laughs> and so I thought that the political piece did a pretty good job at representing all the sides. And as a person from, grew up in New York and full disclosure, voted for Andrew Cuomo mm -hmm. twice. I thought that was a good story. And, um, you know, uh, it was a very interesting situation. It's interesting to hear the other side of that story, which was not necessarily presented in the press at the time. At the time, exactly. And how about David Jackson? Uh, you, what caught your attention? <laughs> oh, I'm going to go to the sports world. Uh, oh, for, the first time in <laughs> for the first time in history, the Texas Rangers have uh, won the World Series. So it was a very pleasurable experience to watch that. I I lived in Dallas and was part of a season ticket group for eight years, so I was very pleased for that. But there is a political connection here because, um, as we know, back in the back yep. in the late 1980s, uh, an investor group bought the Texas Rangers baseball team, and one of the members was one George W. Bush, and that was really his entree into public life was being the public face of the local baseball team. And uh, I covered him in those years and got to know him, and uh, the rest is history. And David, no matter what story there is, you always find the presidential connection. Exactly, to it. <laughs> man. It, it's all, all the piece. It's one big world, man. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, so my favorite story of the week, I just want to say that I find that some of the best reporting and you see anywhere and some of the best stories that you see anywhere are on the obituary page. <laughs> and I always, yes. I always pay attention to them. And I was really caught this week by a story uh, some of you may have known him. You cover Congress, a, a man by the name of Bertie Bowman, who died at the age of 92. He was the oldest 
serving black staffer in the United States Congress. An incredible story. He ran away from home, David, in South Carolina. That's right. When he was 13. Mm-hmm. He was the son of sharecroppers, ran away from home, came up to Washington because he had met just by, by fluke the senator from South Carolina at the time, Burnett Maybeck. Exactly. He showed up in Maybeck's office. Maybeck gave him a job, 13 sweeping floors for $2 a week. That's how he started out. The senator paid his salary out of his own pocket, $2 a week. But then he got him a job in the coffee shop. Then he got him a job uh, in the barber shop, Shining Shoes, at which Senator Bill Fulbright got to know him, gave him a job on the Foreign Affairs Committee as a clerk on the Foreign Affairs Committee, where one of his tasks was teaching the interns how to do their job. And one of the interns... (laughs) that he mentored and taught was Bill Clinton, a young guy from <laughs> Bill Clinton. And then Bernie Bowman continues. He was like decades as a chief staffer on the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. And he also got help from Strom Thurmond, who helped him get into Howard, and Jesse Helms, who promoted him uh, and got him a promotion in the Foreign Affairs Committee staff to outright notorious segregationists. Uh, and this guy got to know them all and serve them all uh, and, and, and was loved by everybody. And he learned a little politics along the way. I love the fact when he retired in 2021, he gave an interview to NPR and NPR said, okay, you've been the chief clerk of the Fire and Affairs Committee. Which one is your favorite senator? And Bowman replied, there are 27 senators on the committee, they are all my favorite. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> Which I thought was just a, just a great wrap-up. But anyhow, check the obit page, people. Don't <laughs> find some find some good stories there. With that, another great big thanks to today's panel: Arthur Delaney from Huffington Post, Lauren Burke from Black Press USA, David Jackson from USA Today. Good to have you with us. Thanks for all your insights and looking back on the news of the week. And thanks to all of our good friends for joining us today here on the Bill Press Pod. We'll be back on Tuesday, joined by Barbara McQuaid. You see her all the time on MSNBC, former U.S. attorney, a legal analyst, who's going to walk us through all the various, all the many Trump trials taking place this week and what we can expect out of any of them. With that, have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.